Welcome back to another episode of Pocket Law Talks. This is your host, Brett. Over at the controls, as usual, is Devin. Hey, how's it going? Today we're doing a little bit of a different type of episode. Today is going to be about uh, prosecutorial powers and some of the overreaches that they are able to do. So what, with this one, this is kind of going to be on one side of the fence. Our next episode is going to be about Delphi and all the stuff that happened with the judge. But then our following episode, we would really love to have a prosecutor on who can then give a rebuttal to all of these. And when he's given those rebuttals, we are going to be playing the other side of the fence. So we'll be on the prosecutor's side. and We're working on that guest right now. Yep. And so we'll give you both, basically both sides of the fence, and that way you can make your own decision. These views we do not necessarily endorse at all. Uh, this was written by Casey Bastian from the Human Rights Defense Center. They write a lot of articles, and they have a lot of attorneys that work for them, uh, specifically related to criminal justice news, uh, you know, your human rights, things like that. Very, I would say, pro, uh, pro-prisoner, pro a lot of prisoner yeah. articles, things like that. So, yeah, we're going to be on the sort of the far side of uh, – this topic. Yeah, so keep in mind that this is going to be biased in that regards, and then when we have the prosecutor on, it's going to be biased for the prosecutor's side. And we're, like I said, we're going to be playing both sides of the fence, so that way you guys can make your own decision. Uh, and there, I have multiple quoted sources, so you're going to hear all the sources that I have listed here. And the first one's going to be the power of the prosecutor in America, abuse, misconduct, unaccountability, and miscarriages of justice by the criminal legal news. And that is uh, the blog for the Human Rights Defense Center. That was written, written by Casey Bastian. Yeah, yeah, I'd already seen um, Just to sort of start this off, uh, you know, kind of what, what does this topic mean? It's an incredible – being a prosecutor carries an incredible, incredible amount of power. And, you know, we don't talk about our backgrounds a whole lot, but I spent about half my career as an attorney, about 10 years as a prosecutor before I became a defense attorney. Um, they carry a massive stick. And it, it, it goes across the board. And so we're going to take a look at that a little bit. Um, Not if, just outright power either, but also influence. Well, and think about if you are the person that gets to decide who, when, and where somebody gets charged with a crime. Yeah, and that's a, how long that. they're put up. Or not necessarily how long they're put up, but the ranges. Well, of they carry a lot of power and how the, that case gets resolved. But the mere power of deciding somebody gets a criminal charge is that's a that's a tremendous amount of power right because i mean i'm sure as many of you know guilty until proven innocent but lately our society's not so much been like that just a charge is enough to make you lose your job uh you mean innocent until proven guilty oh yeah it was a fruitian <laughs> slip because that's how it really is is that you <laughs> get charged even if it's guilty until proven innocent yeah, that's what I meant. But lately, it's been what I had originally said, where you get a charge, even it's dismissed. We've seen people get fired because of it on things as simple as what was thought to be a DUI or something else. You know, some of these offenses are understandable, right? Like if it's a rape or something like that. But sometimes it's as little as a misdemeanor. Well, I'd say I would say almost every charge is understandable. It's making well, sure being dismissed, people though. should be charged. Well, yeah, but it's also you know, I mean, we've had people come here that are complaining that they're having something that was dismissed used against them and they want their dismissed record expunged which shouldn't even shouldn't be a thing yeah yeah and here in indiana that's that has been improved it used to be that if you got a charge dismissed you had to take a proactive step of filing what's called an expungement hire an attorney basically to do it 
Um, yeah, so you didn't do anything wrong. Courts decided you didn't do anything wrong, but you're going to have to pay an attorney a couple thousand outside of already resolving the case to remove the case. Right. And they, they just passed a new law oh, some time ago here in Indiana, at least, that says that a court's supposed to automatically expunge a dismissed case within 60 days of that dismissal. So that, in theory, if the if implemented as designed, will make it where uh, you know somebody that may have been wrongfully accused and had their case dismissed gets an expungement without having to take any other affirmative step on their own part. Now remember, this is the government, so everything always looks great on paper, and they always manage to fuck it up. Well, it's already there's already we are seeing that some uh, they've tweaked the law. Uh, and, and said sort of that you may have to ask for it, but you aren't going to have to file. We don't think, at least, it's still coming out and seeing how it's going to play out, but we don't think you're going to have to file the formal motion you used to, uh, the formal pleadings you used to. We think we're going to be able to just do it by a motion now. So they they have made some improvements in that regard, for sure, but it does that doesn't account for, in some cases, when somebody's charged with a crime, especially when it's made the media, made the news, things of that nature, the the impact is un, un, unfixable. Right. So typically the way that we do these podcasts is I, I make, a, um, you know, some things for us to go over an outline, and we kind of follow it very loosely. Because of that, we don't necessarily cite sources unless it is, a, you know, an actual fact they are trying to list. And we kind of just go off our own experiences, and I try to think of, you know, what you guys would ask. This one, you're going to hear me flipping pages a little bit more because I'm going to be not so much reading verbatim. Some of it will be because I'm going to be having quotes and whatnot. I'll still be having my own ideas thrown in there as well That's I've written on here. Uh, and then Brad will be given what his you know valuable personal life experience, work experience, all of that. So what are prosecutors typically called? The champion of the people. And to many people, that's how they're viewed. Americans rightly expect that those given such tremendous responsibility and incredible power will ensure that justice is done. They shall maintain the integrity of the criminal justice system and promote respect for the rule of law. To that end, the American prosecutor ought to be noble and honorable, committed to vindicating the law, and someone to whom the notion of success isn't simply the number of convictions obtained at any cost. And that is a direct quote from the, the prior mentioned article. And I think we can all agree, like, that would be the perfect prosecutor. That's what we all envision when we think of a prosecutor, or at least I do. Yeah, no, ideally, if you if you could build a prosecutor, you would have somebody that's extremely um, committed to looking at the case, the facts, the evidence, the investigation that law enforcement has done, and deciding, okay, is this a case that should be filed? That's, a, that's the first step. And then second, once the case has been filed – as the evidence develops, they are seeking out what is the what is justice in the case. What, right. What what happened? And if they get evidence that that maybe the investigation was wrong, maybe the investigation missed something, maybe the investigation was based on false information, that they'll act on that in a way that 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 is positive. Um, and I, I'll say the practical side of that is all over the board. Um. So I, one of the things I think it's worth mentioning here is I don't people probably don't know that I think people think police officers decide what they're charged with. You know, they arrest them and they tell them what they're going to be arrested for. That's not really how it works. The the police officer will arrest somebody and they'll book them in on a charge saying that you know they'll let the jail basically a recommendation. Well, sort of. It's it's 
basically saying what they've been arrested for. Well, yeah, so kind of a recommendation. But they what happens is there's prosecutors that are called screeners because they screen potential new cases, and they look over all the evidence. They look at all at all the um, uh, investigation that the police have done. Sometimes good, sometimes not. And then they decide whether or not to file charges. Now, do those screeners, I know in some counties they don't do, you know, any actual cases outside of screening. Is there counties where they screen and follow through with the case? Yes. So a couple couple different points on that. Uh, At the federal level, they do what's called vertical prosecution. That means they they, they keep the case from top to bottom. So if they file it, they prosecute it. There's a lot to be said for that model because when you're the one that's going to have to potentially try the case, you're going to be pretty careful about what you file because you're the one that's going to have to deal with the, the ramifications of it if it goes if it goes bad. Um, most state prosecutors are the complete opposite. Now, in a smaller county, sometimes in a smaller county, the same people prosecuting the cases are the same people that are screening them. It's usually simply just because of a lack of budget. Yeah, there's not enough personnel and enough case cases to come through come through the door to justify a person that does just that. But even even mid-sized counties and larger typically will have prosecutors that will do nothing but screen cases. So they'll look at the investigation. They will um, decipher what they think is the the likely facts in the case and then make a charging decision. That phase is super important if it's done correctly because uh, that's where cases should be caught where maybe – you know, somebody should or shouldn't be charged. And prosecutors don't just file charges every time. There are prosecutors that take that very seriously. And I'll say it's across the board, uh, different across the board too. Some prosecutors, when they're doing screening, will take the outlook of what charge can I fit? What's the highest level charge I can fit into these facts? You know, how, how can I charge the most aggressive thing I can possible? Other prosecutors, when they screen cases, look at it as what do I think I should get a conviction on based on these facts, if I should. So what he's mentioning is also in a similar understanding, and and then something that I mentioned later, so this will be repeated, but uh, something that police were doing that was criticized during the crack epidemic where they were trying to stamp out crime and uh, their strategy was pretextual pro- prosecution, which prosecution starts by picking the man, and then you pin some offense on him. So it sounds pretty similar. Where they have the man, now what can we hit him with? It, the targeted, it, uh, what's called targeted prosecution, you were just mentioning, is is an interesting one, and I've seen it in action. Um, and Indianapolis ended up getting criticized for this at one point. Uh, they created an acronym for what they thought were the really bad guys in town, if you will, uh, and they called them Vipers. And what did the acronym? Do you remember what the acronym was? It was like for? violent. Um, I can't remember prosecution. Something response. I don't remember what they all stood for, but it was. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna look that up real quick. Okay. So, this Viper uh, targeted prosecution was interesting. As it came, as a as a case came in the door. Um, these names of the individuals would be screened prior to the screening prosecutor getting the investigation. And if they were on the Viper list, there would be this bright red stamp that would be placed on the screening folder. And it would literally say the word Viper, like the snake, V-I-P-E-R. And I, the... 
The intentions were to try to target what they thought were the most violent criminals in the city and giving them special attention if their when their case was going through screening. And not just through screening, all the way through the entire prosecution process. This was as early as 2018. This, like, I thought this was something that was going on in the crack epidemic. This happened five, six years ago in well, Evansville. Had to be, yeah, yeah. What did this? What does this? What do they say it stands for? Violent Incident Prevention Enforcement Response. Yeah, yeah. So they would lay them those vipers. But they, they did this in Indianapolis for a while, and then it it got it got terminated because of you know. Think about when you talk about implicit biases. You've put a stamp of viper on a on a, a person's case before you've even looked at it. Yeah, don't uh, don't even really know the guy. You have assumptions. Yeah, I mean they were people that had lengthy criminal histories. Usually people that had uh, uh, violent criminal histories, and so the idea behind it was they would be, I guess, more careful in how they screen the cases with the vipers to try to see what they could prove against them. To try to get them off the streets. That's that's really what it was about. Yeah, so even though they may not be specifically committing a crime in that moment, maybe, you know, they haven't committed a crime in a few years and they're trying to get their life on track. Don't care. IMPD wants them off the street entirely. They're a viper. Yeah, and so they, they'd get a bright red stamp on their 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 folder or their file. And, the, and you know, when, they, when a file's made, it, it would start. Now, this is different now because it's all electronic, but this was back in, in my prosecutorial days. The folder would follow the case all the way through. So in the screening process, it would start out in the screening process with this bright red Viper stamp on it. And then when you got a Viper case uh, in, in, you know, as a prosecutor handling the actual case itself, you were supposed to be harsher uh, in terms of how you approach the case and, and the possible penalty uh, that you would give that person. So, yeah, that's a real thing. There was targeted prosecution. Um, you know, I think. You can see both sides of the argument on that. Uh, certainly, it, it creates some, some some implicit biases in the process, especially at the screening level. Um, but, you know, there's certainly some logic to trying to target people that have a history of being violent within the city, thinking, uh, especially if you think they're still engaging in criminal conduct. Right. So we had just spoke about how prosecutors need to be the champion of the people and how this quote had said that they are uh, – you need to promote respect for the rule of law – they need to be noble and honorable, uh, committed to vindicating the law. And it's actually really interesting because I had just read a quote, and it was by a Roman philosopher. I, I feel like it was Plato. But he said those – Plato's my favorite. He says those that desire power are the ones that are least deserving of it, and those that do not want said power are ones that will do best with it. Yeah, no, that that sounds either Plato or Socrates-ish uh, for sure. I I think there's a lot to that. Now, they're saying that in the preface of – this was in the preface that people who were born into being the emperor – or because this was during like the empire days. Sure. People that were born into the line of secession were – there was like an 80% chance that they were going to be a terrible, cruel emperor. But those that were picked to lead, not from you know just being born into that – uh, were really great emperors. Yeah, so it'd be kind of like uh, Ivan the Terrible versus like Jesus. Uh, it would be like Oct- Octavius Caesar versus Trajan. 
Uh, now you're <laughs> you're talking above my head. Trajan was picked <laughs> by Nera. I know Caesar. Know nothing about Octavia. Whatever you just said. So Nera became the empress, and she didn't have a son. So she picked Trajan to become uh, her successor. And this started a hundred years called the Five Good Emperors, where there was no backstabbing. Uh, the government stayed the same, and it was a. It, basically, at this point, the Roman Empire was on a huge downfall, and this stopped it for a hundred years. And that being, she picked the best qualified person to lead, as opposed to whoever was just born. So they actually succession. had such a personal relationship that after Nera, Nera died, Trajan always referred to himself as Nera's son, even though he was not right. And so that's the type of relationship they had. And then the very last emperor of this. Uh, five year or the five good emperors ended up having a son. Picked that son to be the successor, and it stopped the five good emperor era. Okay, okay. Oh, well, that's lot. That, that that makes sense. But I, I, yeah, I think there's something to that saying. I think that uh, someone. Uh, I think a good leader is okay with having power because they, if, if they're a good leader, they know how to use it judiciously. I think somebody that seeks power uh, is probably doing it for more right. selfish reasons. Right. Yeah. Someone who, you know, doesn't necessarily want to be the leader but has the capability to be the leader. Right. And and, and because they are, uh, I guess a born leader will accept the burden and can do it well. Or somebody that's, that's seeking power. Uh, is do you know the motivations for that is probably not pure, right? So what happens when we find out that the reality is different, and that not all of these prosecutors are the champion of the people? There's still some fantastic prosecutors out there, some that still approach their jobs every day with empathy, sympathy, and with the understanding that what they could do could really destroy someone's life. And well, granted, and, and and seeking seeking justice. I mean, I right. I can name instances. On both sides, I've had cases where um, my clients were 100% targeted because of their race, right? And I brought that to a prosecu- prosecutor's attention, and not only did they dismiss the case, they called the police officer's superior and suggested that that specific officer needed to go through some sort of sensitivity training about. You know, not having those implicit biases. I've had prosecutors who I have gone to where there's been police brutality who've not only dismissed the case, they've turned around and charged the police officer. Uh, so there's there's that. But I've also had prosecutors who will maintain a charge. Um, despite there being exculpatory evidence? Despite what I would say was clear evidence that the, that they couldn't make it. Um, because I'd say the, the, the worst type of prosecutor is the one that won't acknowledge that either they or the police made a mistake. Right. And will Extreme bias. die on their decision they made at the very beginning of the case to charge somebody. Right. So, yeah, what happens when we find that sometimes the reality is completely different or when it's revealed that sometimes there's a darker side to being a prosecutor – or worse, that there's prosecutors out there that have never been the embodiment of the glowing public image. And like I said, this is not all of them at all. I'm not saying this is most of them. I'm saying there is some of them, especially sometimes in some of these small towns um, where everybody knows each other. You tend to see a lot of corruption go on there. 
So here's another direct quote from the article I'd mentioned at the beginning. There is simply no greater concentration of power in the criminal justice system than that welded by the modern American prosecutor. And we now know that it is abused at alarming rates. This has devastating consequences for the individuals involved and the criminal justice system at large. One report found that, quote, the scope and subjects of prosecutorial power have likely increased over the past century. Now, keep in mind, it says likely. In 2016, one scholar declared that the, quote, system's overriding evil is the concentration of power in the hands of prosecutors. Prosecutorial abuses occur at both the state and federal level, and the great majority of prosecutors are conducted at the state. Uh, prosecutions are conducted at the state level. There's this assumption, right, that <clears throat> electoral oversight serves as a mechanism of restraint. And since state-level prosecutors are elected officials, you would think that, well, they don't want to make a mistake because they may lose the election. The problem is that this, this also tends to turn really negative, right? Let's take a look, an example at the Richard Allen case. Let's say that – and I, I'm not saying I believe this at all, but – there has been other people that have been picked in this case who ended up – or who have been thought to be the person who did it who ended up not, and one old man died from this already. What if Richard Allen didn't do it and the prosecutor loses? And he doesn't lose due to negligence, but he loses because the facts are just not there. He would lose his election. Well, yeah. The, yeah, This the, the idea of accountability through the electorate assumes an electorate that's paying attention. Uh, and so, and it assumes I think um, a um, oversight with with the an unbiased media that would give the electorate the information they need to to make those decisions. It, you know that's a that's a dynamic that's changed drastically. But even then, you know, you say it is uh, they have to be paying attention to potentially not make these mistakes. Well, what happens when the police arrest someone and they go straight to the media and say, oh, we found the guy who did the Delphi murders, and then the prosecutor decides not to press charges? That would cost them the election. Oh, sure. In a high profile, there's 100% issues in this arena. In a high profile case where there is a ton of media scrutiny and the public has very strong opinions on something that puts the prosecutor in a very, very, very tough spot. A lot of people have said, uh, a lot of times people will say, <clears throat> if you're doing the prosecutor's job right, you're the most unpopular man in the room or the most unpopular woman in the room. And that's because if you're doing it right, you're going to make people mad. You're going to make people mad at who you charge. You're going to make people mad at who you don't charge. You're going to make people mad at how you uh, prosecute the case. You're going to make people mad at the plea, plea agreements you reach. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure on high-profile cases. But 95% are – there is no news, and people don't know. Yeah. They have no idea. And keep in mind, how many prosecutors are in Marion County alone? Somewhere in the neighborhood of 170. Only one of those are voted. Only one's elected. Yeah, That's correct. Exactly. So only one has that same level of yeah, oversight. They're, they're all, quote, the rest of the, all the rest of them are called deputy prosecutors. They work under the power of the elected prosecutor. But they're the ones making the day-to-day decisions, largely based you know based on some policies that are put in place. But think about this is something that is uh, many people probably don't know. Indiana is like number one, two, three, something like that in the nation for the number of elected officials because we elect stupid things like – surveyor and uh, auditor and things of that nature. 
with the idea that the electorate is keeping tabs to make sure that those people are doing the clerk, that people are doing those jobs right. How how many people have voted for a the, local election, a surveyor, or a clerk, or an auditor, uh, and had any idea who they were voting for? And now keep in mind the people that do typically vote in these elections. Who are they? Elderly people who are bored. So who controls? the county, the state, the policies you live in, the elderly people who, at least what's really obvious right now, are highly disconnected from the rest of society in their thinking and views. Now, I said it's not 100% true. I've not all literally not missed an election since I was 18. You are also almost 60. <laughs> I'm not almost 50, not 60. I mean, I said you're since a 18, a so away. I was doing it when I was young, too. So, you're, but you're right. It's a very small portion of the population, but even in that small population, and, and you know, I'll um, I'll tell the the story of my my now deceased grandmother. Uh, she voted in an election here uh, locally, and um, yeah, I, I disagreed. It really, it's, well, it, my opinion was different as to who should have been elected, and uh, or who she who I thought was the better candidate. And so I asked her why she voted for the candidate she voted for, and it was because she said the name sounded more familiar. That's all she knew. That's why she voted for him. So that you know, when you think of this idea that the electorate is uh, keeping an eye on their government and, and watching it, I'll say it, it sometimes that happens in a prosecutor setting to the extent that when these high-profile cases maybe go a different way than what the public thinks they should, it can be um, hugely detrimental. Can be detrimental. It can also be positive if it goes the way they think it should, but. Sometimes it, if you're, you know, when you're doing a job as a prosecutor, your job's to seek justice based on what the evidence is. The unpopular decision may be to let somebody go, maybe to dismiss the charges. That's a tough thing for an elected official to decide to do um, when they know the ramifications yeah. are going to be. The ramifications is losing their job. I mean, I've had, I've had prosecutors in cases that are what yeah, I would say the, where the evidence is weak. And they'll say this one will be this one's just easier to drive into the wall. I, I it'll be I you know I I hear you I see where the problems are in the case. We're just gonna try it and you know and it it will be what it is. So two things I want to add to that as well. I did say that the elderly people you know are controlling the policies and sometimes you know Brad made a comment about his grandma voted for one who had a familiar name. Younger generations are just as bad. There's been a report out that between the ages of 18 to 25, 20% of people will vote for whoever Taylor Swift votes for. So we are just as bad. Uh, so not not just bag it on the old people there. Um, that might be slightly better. At least it was based on a, a referral of sorts. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, but and, and one thing I've noticed, a, a lot of times when people hear this and they hear stuff that is any way, shape, or form – um, can be perceived as anti-government and or anti-policing and pro-prisoner, uh, even if it's not meant – like I'm not meaning it to be that way at all, more of just like a human rights thing or what American society should look like. Just the best way to let people kind of change their mind a little bit is just put yourself in their shoes. Put Think, think what if you were Richard Allen? And not only that – and these are all what ifs, so I could be entirely wrong. Any defendant. What if you were Richard Allen? What if you really did not do it? And what if everybody wants you to be the one who did it? Yeah, the, the danger in these these cases that get the high, high um, 
level of uh, media attention and law enforcement attention and and crimes that maybe seem more heinous than others although i mean there's there's a whole another episode that can be done on the value our society puts on the lives that the media pays the most attention to uh but beyond beyond that the 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 amount of scrutiny that goes into those and wanting to hold somebody responsible is understandable yeah but you got to hold the right person responsible no matter and, and really it shouldn't you know a lot of media attention or not. I mean, there's a lot of uh, inner city kids that get charged with murder cases. Some of them, they sure they did it. Some of them, they may not have done it. The right, the idea is, you know, our system should be, and it is built to be, air on the side of caution. Yeah. Now, and and keep in mind, two young girls died. Okay, so it's it's bad. It's terrible. Right, and that was because of whoever did this. So he has at least two people he has killed. But because of this pressure on the police and on somebody the prosecutors. Because no, some those two girls are dead. Like right, right, not, right. Somebody has killed. Um You said he. Okay, yeah. Those two girls, I mean. Uh because of this intense pressure on the police, on the prosecutor, now the government is responsible for, at least in my opinion, for killing that old man. As soon as he was released, he had a heart attack because of all this negative. Oh, you're, you're talking about the guy that was arrested originally that didn't didn't do was it. Was released just because his house bordered the area that the women were yeah. killed in, and because he was so old, he couldn't remember what he did that day. Yeah, there there are instances like that where uh, I've seen a couple a couple of different instances in my career where somebody's been arrested for a pretty serious crime and released within a four or five days and never charged. That's a that's a bad mistake. That's a really bad mistake, and it damages people. That's why that when I talked about that screening process, a, a, a good screener, a good screening prosecutor, will many times, many times, send the detective back out with a to-do list and be like, "No, nah, this isn't good enough. We need to. We need more. There's too many unanswered questions, and you got to do." Um, uh, a better job at this investigation. Come back to me when you got more. That's a good screener. Yeah. Now, within law enforcement, some people will say that screener's a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, anybody they, they who makes their job already, harder. Well, they think they've already completed their investigation. They've done all the work, or they wouldn't have come come with the case. There's some. Sometimes there may be truth to that. I know. Um, uh, I'm not going to name any names today, but I know a particular screen a, a particular prosecutor that did screening. Um, that was notorious for uh, sending detectives back out with a to-do list. And, you know, they didn't appreciate that sometimes because they thought they'd already done all of everything they needed to do in the investigation. But that's what oversight's kind of for. When that case, if that case ended up getting filed, it would be in, in a better, it would be in better shape. Everybody yeah. would know more answers. It would be more thoughtfully filed. And that's really how it should be. And, and that's what's crazy is if I had a case go in front of the government, and like if I was charged with something out of everybody, that's the screener I would want to have because he uh, – Sure, we I, all would. Yeah. We wouldn't want someone who – we actually want someone who do, does their job more. Yeah, the other, the other end of the spectrum is what we call a rubber stamp, right? The prosecutor, everything, everything that's brought into the prosecutor, whatever the police say – that's what they're going to do, and they're just going to stamp their name to the charging information and file away. Now, 
some of this, practically speaking, when you're talking about misdemeanors, like shoplifts and things like that, they have to be pretty expedient in how they, they right. screen them just out of, out of necessity and volume. But on more serious cases, serious felonies, violent felonies, things are going to alter that person's life and also wanting to make sure you get justice for the, the victim against the right person. It needs to be done thoughtfully. Right. So we do have a lot more information to give, so I'm going to speed up a little bit more. So we just talked about how the idea is that electoral oversight serves as a mechanism of restraint. At the federal level, however, top prosecutors and their subordinates are appointed, and there is no electoral uh, accountability. And the range of criticisms is, is broad in many persuasions. And this is not a quote from us. This is a quote from a former prosecutor. No one of good conscience should want the job, which to me seems way over – good conscience seems a little far. A federal appellate judge declared that there is an epidemic of prosecutors hiding exculpatory evidence, and that's alarming if true, and the evidence indicates that it may be. <coughs> the National Registry of Exonerations found that 30% of all exonerations involved misconduct by prosecutor. The University of California at Irvine School of Social Ecology noted that the misconduct by federal prosecutors was two and a half times more common than misconduct by police and an astounding seven times as common among white-collar crime exonerations. Yeah, I think that... The, the federal system is a trickier system than the state system. The state system, uh, discovery is mandated. You have to give over every piece of discovery you have. Um, in both systems, there's um, exculpatory evidence is mandated to be turned over. So if it's something that tends to prove the innocence of your client, that has to be turned over. That's a significant, it's a Brady violation. To not, it's called a Brady violation to not do that and can also be some, something that subjects the prosecutor it's a pretty significant discipline if they don't do it. But the federal system doesn't have the same uh, access to discovery that the state system does. We don't get to do depositions, things of that nature. So I'd say in, this, in the federal system, it's, it's certainly um, more ripe for um, information not being known, I guess would be the way, best way to put it. I, I think that quote's probably a little harsh in terms of um, I don't think most prosecutors hide information. Are there some that have and some that do? For sure. There's cases that have specifically said that. I feel like it ultimately just stems from mindset. I don't even think it stems from necessarily being evil or bad at your job or hating society. I think it stems from mindset. One part of it is that anybody who comes in front of you is automatically a criminal. And secondly, that they, they want the number of successful cases to be higher. Yeah, the prosecutors tout their conviction rate all the time uh, as a a thing to to be high in terms of uh, success. Um, you know, and, and in some jurisdictions, they'll have you plead to multiple counts in the same case to increase their conviction rate. <laughs> that shouldn't that shouldn't necessarily be the measure of a good prosecutor. It's an easy thing to put out there from a, a marketing slash campaign stance, but. It's not really uh, what I would consider a good measuring stick. Yeah, I feel like it would almost be like a dog whistle. Yeah, it, it, well, if it's if it's really high, they've either done a hell of a job screening, so they're only screening the best of the best cases, or they're maybe being a little overhanded. Right, and I mean that argument can be made for federal prosecutors. They have like a 99% success rate, but that's because they're really particular with the cases they'll take. They are. They're, they're, their system, I would say from a screening standpoint, is a better one because the people that screen them handle them and they don't want to handle crappy cases. So they won't file them until they're really built, well-built cases. The other part of the system that's been largely eliminated that also I think played sort of a, 
an interesting role in this is the grand jury. Um, they're still utilized. There's still a lot to be utilized in, in, in Indiana and Marion County regularly uses grand juries and the grand jury is where the general public is presented the information from law enforcement members of the general public and they're hidden. It's private. Yeah. And they, they, um, uh, they decide what, if anything to charge. Now keep in mind, these are not people with any, not, at least not always. A lot of these people will not have any knowledge necessarily of the criminal system of our laws. They may try and explain stuff to them, but it could just, you could be like your neighbor who is a carpenter. You know yeah, what I mean? They are, yeah. They and they, but they do. The the prosecutors that handle grand juries will explain the law, and then they certainly have influence over how the grand jury. Well, you're hearing it decisions. from one side, but, one side's interpretation of the law. But usually, the the grand jury process at least vets it a little bit differently than like a just having one prosecutor screen it. Right. So now we're going to get into prosecutors' discretion. They have the discretion to file cases, uh, to charge all that. So. Many social justice groups claim that the pro- most prosecutors are willing to protect trigger-happy cops. While not able to be proven, Professor of Law Angela J. Davis at the American University of Washington College of Law argues that, quote, the deficiency of prosecu- prosecutorial discretion lies not in its ex- existence, but in the randomness and arbitrariness of its application. A prosecutor's discretionary charging power, the ability to charge someone with a crime or not, is likely the most consequential of many important duties and responsibilities of prosecutors. This power is the essence of, quote, control over the entire system. The prosecutor can guide the entire outcome of the process as they desire through nothing more than the charges filed against a defendant. There is a notable lack of transparency when it comes to the exercise of this discretionary power. The decision to charge or plea bargain is entirely discretionary and essentially unreviewable. This power results in prosecutors having a greater impact than that of any other official within the criminal justice systems. Factors that lead to these decisions are made behind closed doors. There's absolutely no requirement that a prosecutor disclose their reasoning. Most offices do not even have a uniform standards guiding these decisions, and charging bases are often made on an ad hoc, quote, when necessary basis. E.g., perhaps the prosecutor learns that the defendant has a criminal history or information that can be leveraged. The significance of this discretionary latitude cannot be overemphasized. Let's imagine a person is arrested for allegedly possessing methamphetamine. The prosecutor has multiple options. No charges or charges designed to increase the prosecutor's leverage for purposes of conviction. A charge of simple possession is likely a misdemeanor, while distributing offenses can carry a lengthy mandatory minimum terms of imprisonment. A factually innocent person faced with the potential to spend years behind bars will frequently plead guilty to simple possession after being charged with the greater offense just to minimize sentencing exposure. There are many real-world cases in which people have pleaded guilty to possession of a drug that later turned out to be a perfectly legal substance such as donut icing or stress ball sand. Such a disturbing outcome is even more likely if the person has a prior record. The NRE found that 20% of all exonerations involved wrongful convictions resulting from guilty pleas. Another aspect of prosecutorial discretion is the trial penalty. That describes the situation where a prosecutor requests a substantially harsher sentence upon a conviction at trial after the defendant rejected a prior plea offer containing a lighter sentence for no other reason than the defendant had the audacity to insist on exercising their right to a trial and did not spare the prosecution the, quote, inconvenience and necessity of a trial. According to the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, quote, this penalty is now so severe and pervasive it has virtually eliminated the constitutional right to a trial. Now, after this prosecution podcast we do and after the Delphi podcast that we have coming up, we're going to be doing uh, a podcast about trials, and that's going to be a huge part of it. How we ne- we aren't – the right to trial is not what it was meant to be and is virtually removed. There's no longer a right. Well, yeah, we did an episode back – several episodes ago about the history of the jury trial – 
And it used to be that's how every case was just resolved. They just did trials and everything. And, you know, the prosecutor tried their, their case. The state would try the – or the defense would put on their case, and the jury just decided this was either uh, they violated the law or they didn't. There's a lot in that last uh, that last little segment there. Um, yes, the, the prosecutor – the prosecutorial discretion in screening is huge. Um, there are people, prosecutors' offices, that uh, I would say would overcharge people just to build leverage to get – convictions on lesser charges where that can be really frustrating from and we di- see that a lot a lot of people who at least we believe they're innocent and they they don't want to overcharged trial. yeah or, and they or don't want to risk trial and and so the, the slightly different issue though the the overcharging to build leverage to get a harsher sentence on the crime that was actually committed is one I struggle with a lot because I don't, I don't think that's right. I don't think you should charge people with what you think they did. And then, you know, where, I, where it gets really sort of aggravating as a defense attorney is when somebody's overcharged, you plead a case to what really happened or something in lines with what really happened, and then the judge or the prosecutor will sort of discreetly argue that, well, they got the benefit of this plea agreement that's better than what they were charged with, so I'm going to be harsher on their penalty for what they did plead guilty to. Even though they did not do what they were originally charged with. Right. That's frustrating. Uh, Sometimes we do get a a plea worked out where somebody pleads to something lesser, um, and they maybe maybe could have been convicted of what the more serious thing is. And, and, you know, sometimes there's a point to be made there, but... Many times they overcharged or the facts didn't end up supporting the, the, the harsher charge. And in that instance, it really shouldn't be something that's considered in sentencing. But unfortunately, we do see that with a pretty degree, pretty significant degree of uh, commonness. Now, that's different than the what they call the trial penalty. Um, the trial penalty, I mean, it's a statutory mitigator so there's there's aggravators and, and mitigators in indiana one of the statutory mitigators which means the court's supposed to give you a lighter sentence is that you took responsibility um for the uh the criminal act that you uh, had remorse and took responsibility well that's how they can sort of back there in a, a trial penalty is because then you didn't take that right yeah so you lose that mitigator and that mitigator not being there almost becomes an aggravator, and that yeah, it, it because the absence of remorse makes it seem like you are not there is no remorse. Well, it's not just remorse; it's taking responsibility and, and responsibility. Yeah, right. So right. when somebody pleads guilty, they can say, "All right, well, you took responsibility, so that's a mitigator." But if you go to trial, it shouldn't be an aggravator. No, you just don't have that mitigator. And I, often, I think I feel like it's treated as an aggravator that they didn't take responsibility. Well, that's not an aggravator. That it's a mitigator, not an aggravator. And I really want to drive home the fact that this is not a rare phenomenon. This is becoming increasingly common. The trial penalty is like that's been known that it, that. Oh, that's happened for decades. Yeah, decades. And then and this overcharging, at least from what I've seen, seems to be a lot more prevalent than it has been. Um, uh, I mean, I I don't know about that. I I think that's existed too. I mean, I, that that definitely existed been, even in my early days as a prosecutor. Uh, there, there would be times that, you know, the screening prosecutor, you could tell, filed a charge just to give you more leverage. And, you know, the one that's really uh, being used a lot for leverage now is the habitual offender statutes. Um, you know, you can qualify as a habitual offender on some pretty low-level stuff, like 
you know, even possession of marijuana back in the day uh, when it was a level six felony. You have you have a certain number of those, and you could be you can become a habitual offender, and even and that know, gives you mandatory minimums. And well, and and increases the harshness really significantly, and sometimes it's sometimes it's warranted. Sometimes it's used as a tool to get a really harsh sentence on the underlying offense, and that you know that's that's not an abuse of prosecution, but it, in certain circumstances, it's not I think what it was made for. Well, I think in certain circumstances it's, it's misused uh, for sure. Right, and so uh, the the absence of I won't say the absence of trials, but the proliferation of plea deals has actually made uh, prosecutors have a lot more power and have actually hurt our uh, justice system despite it meant to do the other like the opposite and that's something that we're going to get into a little bit later as well and so we we brought up pretextual prosecution and so that's another form of exercising prosecutorial power and there has been this enthusiastic trends toward this quote ad hoc instrumentalism it has been described as quote the use of criminal prosecutions and other legal proceedings as interchangeable tools available for opportunistic use quote against people or behaviors thought to be dangerous or undesirable Traditionally, there was a sense among prosecutors to only prosecute pr- criminal violations and not to do so out of a, quote, desire to punish the defendant for other reasons, unquote. With pretextual prosecution, instead of first discovering a crime has been committed and identifying the culprit, a prosecutor starts by picking the man and then pin some offense on him. This strategy is becoming known as intelligence-driven prosecution. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office proudly boasted of discerning who was, quote, driving crime in Manhattan and then, quote, becoming focused on taking them out. This concept of intelligence-driven prosecution mirrors similar policing tactics. Advocates argue there is nothing nefarious about it, but simply that prosecutors, quote, employ computerized analytics to target organization re- organizational resources where they will have the greatest impact. Often, the poor and other disfavored groups are subject to these so-called intelligence-driven prosecutions. Unfortunately, the pro- opportunities for prosecutor- prosecutorial abuse are virtually limitless. So what precisely is driving the increase in prosecutorial power is a subject of debate. It is not solely within individual cases that prosecutors wield power. The full spectrum of prosecutors' duties and powers also involve planning and lobbying for criminal justice policies and strategies. Typically, the head prosecutor also serves as a de facto leader of the local criminal justice system. Prosecutors lobby for or against policies while exerting substantial influence over criminal justice legislation. Increased power may be a natural consequence when one considers the, quote, politics of crime involving, quote, tough-on-crime politicians and policies. There has been what there has been what is described as an explosion in what constitutes a federal crime. In 1980, there were 3,000 federal crimes. In 2008, there were 4,450. In addition, there are federal regulations which are so numerous that they can't even be accurately counted, but is believed that they number in the tens of thousands. According to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, there were almost 84,000 federal prosecutors in 2010. There were only 29,000 in 1990. Prose- Mr. Prosecutions, not prosecutors. Oh, yeah, yeah, federal prosecutions. You're right. I misread that. Misdemeanor prosecutions have doubled at the state level since 1972. So the question is, could the increase in prosecutors' power be attributed to the proliferation of criminal statutes? So now we're going to get into plea bargains and the downsides. Well, that's one of the things that that we'll discuss with plea bargains is the – so the plea bargain – the idea behind the plea bargain is you control a result, which can be good for a client. It's also efficiency. It's an efficient way to resolve cases without trials because if you took every case to trial that's filed now, there's not enough time. But that's also because they made the criminal justice system so burdensome and expensive, and that's what we're going to get into in that other podcast about trials is they have made it this way. They have made it so burdensome. They have made it to where trials take so long. They've made it to where trials are so expensive. Well, I mean, 
expensive, maybe. I mean, it's expensive if you're hiring a private attorney. It's not if you hire if you're using a public defender. But only certain parts of the population qualify for a public defender. Um, trials are and you get what you pay for. Trials are cumbersome. They they do take a lot of time. They do take a lot of effort. That's why and they're expensive. Made for it private. that way. The paper, the oversight, which is a good thing. But just all the things you have to do, someone created this justice system, and it was created to do exactly what it is doing and has been perverted in some ways. And because of that, our right to trial has been well, drastically diminished. The, the argument, at least being made in the, in the article we're primarily relying on today, is the plea bargain has made the process so efficient it makes it easier to file more charges. All right. So other factors to consider are ballooning caseloads and rapid rise of plea bargaining. Researchers in 2012 found that, quote, as systems of criminal adjudication have become increasingly burdened, they have substituted consensual case dispositions for trials. Similar to how traffic increases when a highway is widened, plea bargaining seems to have, quote, inflated caseloads by expanding the system's capacity, unquote. That's quite thought-provoking because it's generally been thought that the rise to dominance of the plea bargain was in response to untenable caseloads. The natural restraint of a prosecutor to behave ethically and legally has been curtailed by the Supreme Court. In Embler v. Pacman, 424 U.S. 409, and this was in 1976, the court declared that is, quote, better to leave unredressed the wrongs done by dishonest officers of the court than to subject those who try to do their duty to the constant dread of retaliation. Understandable, right? Except with that statement, the court helped create the environment in which many prosecutors brazenly flout the rules governing fair trials and ensuring due process of law because they understand that there's virtually no consequences for bad behavior. Prosecutorial immunity is likely the root of prosecutorial misdeeds and the increase in power. Yeah, so prosecutor, prosecutor immunity is is, uh, is 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 an interesting thing. Obviously, they want uh, they want yeah, to, you should be able to do your jobs. Yeah, they want the prosecutor to be able to do their job without worrying about being sued all the time. So the standard is if they had probable cause to do whatever they did. And they're immune from law, civil lawsuits. That's a low burden, um, and so you know you don't see a successful way to sue a prosecutor. There are some other checks in place that you know. There's uh, in Indiana. There's a specific set of ethics rules that apply only to prosecutors. Uh, don't apply to other attorneys. Um, the the tough part of the ethics side of it is. It's largely governed by the other attorneys in the system. So if the um, prosecutor does something that an attorney thinks is wrong, there's discretion in some ways, uh, in some cases, whether a private attorney would bring that to the attention of the disciplinary commission or not. There are some automatically reportable uh, offenses that you as an attorney have to report or you're supposed to have to report. But it puts puts the people, everybody in the system in kind of a, a trick bag, right? Because you're going to be very reluctant to report somebody to a disciplinary, disciplinary commission because you know you have to do business with them likely again in the future on other, on other clients. So Yeah, it's, and it's not just you you're going to be affecting – this, I mean, biases are hard to look past, and a lot of people don't even know that they're experiencing a bias when they make a decision. So they may slightly not like you and take that out on your client, and yeah. then that is only worse for you and your client. So it, it does work in certain circumstances. I've certainly seen both judges and prosecutors. But with the potential to screw over everyone else down the line. Well, it, hopefully not. Uh, when I say I've seen it work in certain, certain circumstances, I've seen prosecutors be suspended, prosecutors be removed, judges be suspended, judges be removed. Uh, you know, and obviously in that setting, they can't they can't do anything against the people that 
that brought it. But it does. It is a system that has built-in reluctance into it uh, because of the potential future consequences of what may happen to you for having done it in the first place. Right. That's why this stuff going on with Delphi and the judge is huge because those attorneys have some balls. Well, yes and no. I I agree, yes, that they're they're doing exactly what they should do in terms of they are representing their clients, but what they believe in their, is their client's best interest. This is also a judge that neither one of these defense attorneys probably regularly practice in front of. So, uh, you know, the, the concern of, you know, offending them in the future is, is lessened because of that. So imagine how different it would be if they do practice in front of this judge. Maybe they wouldn't have made the same decision. Well, certainly there could be a definite... Um, uh, increase in terms of the uh, least perception that they would be worried about the future of working it. And that's, you know, one of the, the it just, I don't want to get into the Delphi case too much because we're going to do that in the next episode. But, you know, one of the things that was criticized there is that when the judge removed or forced removed or whatever you want to say, the prior counsel, she pointed to attorneys that were public defenders in the county where she practices. Uh, who maybe would be uh, more influenced by her, um, you know, decision making or something? That was something that, that that some have been critical of. So certainly, yeah, in an, an arena where you're not going to be in front of that judge anymore, you're going to maybe be a little more uh, assertive in when somebody's doing something you think that might raise to the level of misconduct or um, bias. Right, and so. There is another reason, as a, uh, another reason advanced as to why prosecutorial power is increasing is that it's more acceptable to people. It's a society problem. The prevailing sentiment among most people is that prosecutors traditionally have exercised authority only within the sphere, sphere of criminal proceedings, and this seems to affect only actual or potential criminal defendants. And most people can't even imagine that they would ever be the target of prosecutorial power. They have limited empathy for those who are. And it is so naive to believe that you would never be the target of a criminal prosecution. Well, as I always tell anybody that asks me about my profession and doing uh, criminal defense work, and they're like, well, you don't know uh, how important of a job we have until you need us. Right. And when you do, that's when you're like, oh, wow. I can't tell you. When we go do our marketing things, everybody's always like, oh, I don't need an attorney until you do. Right. Until you do. And when you do, and especially in our arena. And when you do, it's usually too late if you already don't have. Not too late, but like you're on the back foot. Well, that's why we take we take calls 24 hours a day is because when people need us, they don't probably didn't know about us until they needed us. And then they, they have to look uh, look and try to find somebody on a short notice. Yeah, and you're doing last-minute research with yeah. adrenaline flowing through you, and you're not making as good a decision, which is why I think it's always good. Not necessarily – when I say have an attorney in your back pocket, I don't necessarily mean one that is on retainer at all times and has money but one that you know that if something is going to happen, this will be who you run to. Definitely a good a good thing to at least know of. Because, you know, even if uh, in a situation like uh, when you're thrown into the criminal justice system, and maybe you may be a loved one, you know. Right. And so now I'm going to really start getting into uh, the things that I'm quoting in these books and things that professors and even judges and prosecutors have said. So Harvey A. Silvergate discussed the overreach of federal law in his book, Three felonies a day, how the feds target the innocent. According to the book, federal criminal laws have become dangerously disconnected from the English common law tradition, and pro- prosecutors can pin arguably federal crimes on any one of us for even the most seemingly seemingly innocuous behavior. When everything is a crime, everyone is a criminal. Prosecutors understand that and use it to their advantage. Now, that is a very all prosecutors are bad type of statement, which Rod of course – Right, right. So, of course, I haven't been able to read the book yet. I would love to. 
but you have to keep in mind that this is going to be heavily biased in one way. Uh, but that doesn't mean there's not some some kernels of truth in there. And this was well, I'll say we're brought on a base of something a broad uh, stretch on the federal jurisdiction is federal jurisdiction is supposed to be limited to cases that um, affect interstate commerce and things that cross state lines, right? If it happens within the state, it's supposed to be the state's job to prosecute it. Well, interstate commerce and what across the state lines is now interpreted so broadly, the the advent of cell phones and the fact that the cell phone sends signals that uh, go across state towers, that cross state lines is now used as a tool to make things federal crimes that predate, you know, the use of cell phones. Um, same with bank, uh, anything that involves bank transactions, even though something maybe it was a, a, a fraudulent type claim that only happened at a local bank. Yeah, and you never left the state. Yeah, but they'll use that the, the Federal Reserve cleared the transactions in Chicago. Well, now it's affected interstate commerce, and that's right. how they've really broadened their stroke. So that was Harvey A. Silvergate's Silverglate's book. Now we have David A. Sklansky, and he teaches and writes about criminal law, criminal procedure, and evidence at Stanford Law School and has written extensively on issues surrounding the modern prosecutor. In The Problems with Prosecutors, he identifies, quote, at least seven different problems with American prosecutors, unquote. These issues include the level of overall prosecutorial power generally, unmitigated discretionary function, frequent illegal misconduct, a mindset of punitive ideology governing prosecutor, pro- prosecutor m- conduct, prolific unaccountability, organizational inertia in prosecutors' offices, and the ambiguity of the prosecutor's role in the criminal justice process. Many believe that all the problems in the criminal justice system, criminal justice system revolve around these seven issues. There's a school of thought that believes a just use of the prosecutor's power is where we find the solutions. After all, if the prosecutor welds so much power, exercised correctly, it would probably result true justice. This is known as progressive prosecutor movement. The idea took off after Angela Davis pu- published her 2009 book, Arbitrary Justice, The Power of the American Prosecutor. In her book, she argues that prosecutors should use their discretion to reduce mass incarceration and racial disparities. But the fact that there are racial disparities in arrests and convictions is evidenced by numerous studies. The Bureau of Ju- Justice Statistics revealed that a black man has a 1 in 3 chance of being incarcerated, compared to that to Hispanics, 1 in 6, and whites, 1 in 17. Critics claim this demonstrates the stark racial disparities that characterize the American criminal justice system. And that's not just the criminal justice system's fault either. That's society's fault. That you know, that's remnants of racism and slavery. You know, there's there, it's Impoverished a multi societies are more largely occupied by minorities. Right. And that certainly is a factor in all of this too. Former federal prosecutor, professor, and analyst Paul Butler writes that the movement is new but promising. Butler argues that because prosecutors are, quote, one of the primary sources behind excessive punishment, mass incarcerations, they must be part of the solution. So here's the Supreme Court's view of prosecutors. In 1935, the Supreme Court was led by – and this is going to be a really interesting story just to be an insight uh, into some of these misconducts and even when they can happen by the most outstanding of people. In 1935, the Supreme Court was led by Chief Justice Charles E. Hughes and is often referred to as the Hughes Court. The Hughes Court is remembered for both championing economic conservatism and remarkably progressive rulings that dramatically expanded civil rights and personal freedoms. So it sounded like he was the best of both worlds. The court truly seemed to advance constitutional protections for the individual in every arena of society presented. The scope of criminal procedure decisions merits a lengthy analysis, but the court's opinion in Berger v. United States 295 U.S. 78, 1935 stands as the high watermark for prosecutorial idealism. 
there's a there's a ton of classic quotes that come out of uh, this case that are, are utilized in any any case that looks at prosecutor misconduct or prosecutorial abuse of power. There's a, there's several quotes that uh, are sort of classics that that, that ring true in, in these um, uh, in this case in particular. So at the time, the public image of the prosecutor was quite favorable. So we're running we're running a little bit out of time, but this the rest of this is really important information. So I'm going to speed through it a little bit, and I apologize if it's a little fast. So an examination of the legal landscape. So this next part is about the Supreme Court's view of uh, prosecutors. You know, I told you about the high watermark for prosecutorial idealism. There's a lot of information that's really valuable. However, we are running out of time. So I'm going to go through this pretty quick. I do apologize, but this is just too important to pass up. At that time, the public image of the prosecutor was quite favorable. A New York district attorney named Williams Traverse Jerome was publicly called the courtroom warrior and was highly regarded due to several high-profile prosecutions. Thomas E. Dewey became famous as New York's rackets-busting special prosecutor for convicting several notorious gangsters and the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Dewey became the inspiration for the character in Mr. District Attorney, a popular radio show. The show's opening was quite hyperbolic. Mr. District Attorney, champion of the people, guardian of our fundamental rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the prosecutor enjoyed the public image as the pinnacle of ethics and morality. But even then, the reality was starkly different. Many courtroom observers viewed the typical prosecutor as, quote, a dirty fighter who wins by cheating. Henry Singer left the military after World War I, became a lawyer, and opened a private practice in the 1920s. Singer would eventually join the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. At the time of Harry Berger's prosecution, Singer was the chief assistant. Berger was charged and placed on trial for the run-of-the-mill conspiracy to deal in and possession of fraudulent banknotes. While Singer was known as an aggressive trial lawyer, he was never as well regarded as Dewey or Jerome. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit once rebuked Singer for improper courtroom conduct. The Berger record reveals Singer did not learn his lesson from being chastised by the appellate court. Berger and several co-defendants were prosecuted by Singer. Each charge was based on the testimony of one co-defendant named Jack Katz. He was Singer's key witness. The second court would later characterize Katz as, quote, thoroughly unreliable person. Katz had a lengthy criminal record and was originally facing 122 years in prison and a $50,000 fine. Singer promised him only two years and a $10,000 fine in exchange for his testimony. If that is not to get enough to give you pause regarding Katz's motivation and reliability, Katz was also believing, believed Berger was, quote, romancing his wife. <laughs> Several trial whole other level. Yeah. So all of these personal reasons to screw this guy over. Seven trial witnesses testified to Berger's quote, good reputation for honesty. Based on Katz's testimony, Berger would be convicted of only the conspiracy charge and sentenced to a year and a day in prison. Berger appealed, arguing that he was innocent and Katz framed him. Berger also argued that there was a variance between the indictment and the proof of trial. The second court and eventually the Supreme Court would agree that any variance was quote harmless and quote not fatal to the indictment. However, both courts would note that the evidence of Berger's involvement in this conspiracy was weak. This observation made Berger's argument that Singer's misconduct was, quote, pronounced and persistent, int integral to his appeal. <laughs> Berger would argue that Singer's misconduct denied him the right to a fair and impartial trial. Judge Learned Hand of the Second Circuit addressed Berger's entire argument in one dismissive paragraph. Hand found that Singer had, quote, abused his position, but it would be, quote, fantastic to believe any misconduct affected the verdict. Speaking of the trial, Hand concluded, we can find nothing grave enough to compromise its essential fairness. Berger appealed, bringing his arguments before the Hughes court. The Hughes court disagreed concerning Singer's misconduct, rejected Hand's ruling. It found that Singer's breach of official and unprofessional and professional rules was to be condemned for its, quote, evil influence upon the jury. The court issued an unanimous opinion declaring that Singer's conduct was extreme and cited several examples of misconduct. 
Singer overstepped the bounds of proprietary and fairness because he misstated facts, assumed prejudicial facts not in evidence, alluded to witness testimony that had never been stated, made inflammatory remarks to the jury, and seemed to lie about inculpatory statements made to him outside the jury. The Hughes court would end up issuing an opinion that would be profound in its ideology but disappointing in its enforceability. Within the opinion, Justice Sutherland wrote that a prosecutor's interest, quote, is not that shall win a case but that justice shall be done, unquote. The prosecutor is, quote, a servant of the law and twofold aim being that guilt shall not escape or innocence suffer. One shall prosecute with eagerness and vigor, strike hard blows, but is not at liberty to strike foul ones. The opinion concluded on this promising note. It is much his duty to refrain from improper methods calculated to produce a wrongful conviction as is used to use every legitimate means to bring about a just one. An examination of the legal landscape at the time reveals that Singer's misconduct was not actually unique or unusual. In 1931, a 14-volume report reported by the the National Commission on Law Observance and Enforcement, referred to as the Wickersham Commission, documented rampant prosecutorial misconduct in the criminal justice system. The Wickersham Commission was initially prompted by a need to examine prohibitionary era policies but quickly broadened into a massive critique of the U.S. criminal justice system. One particularly relevant chapter was entitled Unfairness in Prosecutions. The report analyzed 600 cases from 1926 to 1930 in which prosecutorial misconduct was brought to the attention of the courts. The report noted systemic prosecutorial abuse and its adverse impact of the misconduct on the administration of criminal justice. (laughs) Of the 600, two-thirds were reversed, and the only one-third were upheld as the defendant's guilt was clear. And the report found that continuation of such unfair practices would create resentment against law enforcement because the prosecutor is allegedly responsible for law observance. And they talk about how this had endangered the perception of law and how it affects everybody in the chain of command. Yeah, and this Berger decision is one of them that uh, is quoted frequently. There's some great quotes. You read some of them. I think there's some more yet uh, that talk about um, what the duty of the prosecutor is supposed to be. And right. They're supposed to wield their, their sword in a meaningful way, looking for justice, not just convictions. Right. A prosecutor so the report noted that prosecutorial misconduct easily endangers the danger easily engenders the dangerous feelings that a fair trial has been denied and justice is not to be expected. A prosecutor behaving tyrannically and brutally alienates the defendant and causes him to leave prison a bitter enemy of society more willing than before to continue a criminal career. So true, and we see that so often. Then as now the report observed that the most serious consequences is the conviction of the innocent. The report ought to be required reading for all prosecutors. The subsequent, subsequent course of criminal law and procedure reveals an irony in Berger attaining jurisprudential immortality. Berger's powerful rhetoric is cited by courts when reversing convictions due to prosecutorial misconduct. It is used as a ritualistic incantation by defense attorneys when discussing fairness in prosecutions. Probably the most quoted case in this this part of jurisprudence. Right. That's why they call it an incantation, like a ritualistic incantation. Right. Academics use it as a yardstick against which appropriate ethical standards are measured and has been cited hundreds of times in law reviews and thousands of times in appellate briefs. It is meant to inspire a prosecutor to adopt a heroic persona in an effort to eschew winning for the nobler goal of serving the cause of justice. The Hughes court may have made its declaration because it recognized a darker side to the prosecutor's motive. The prosecutor wants to win very badly and not always for noble reasons. So we're coming to the end here. And the reality is that prosecutors are armed with more and better weaponry than their opponent, exercise inordinate influence over the referee and scorekeeper, and they can cheat without getting caught or suffering any penalty. Prosecutors have honed their craft, finding new ways to strike foul blows. Empirical evidence reveals serious and pervasive misconduct. Worse, courts, lawmakers, and professional disciplinary bodies have been unable or unwilling to impose meaningful sanctions. Berger elucidated idealism, but it's used to impose 
ritualistic verbal spankings without identifying a requirement to impose any rule penalties breeds a deplorable, deplorably cynical attitudes towards the judiciary. As Justice Brandis noted in Olmstead v. United States 277 U.S. 433, 438 1935, crime is contagious. If the government becomes a lawbreaker, it breeds contempt for the law. It breeds anarchy. Yeah, and, we, and again, some of this stuff was opinion, especially there at the end. Uh, there's definitely prosecutor uh, misconduct. The Burger case we just referenced is, uses the gold standard for what to look out for. The you know the article we've written, we've cited here frequently written. Uh, what was the gentleman's name again? His name was Casey Bastian. Casey Bastian we from the Human Rights Defense Center. Appreciate being able to utilize some of his writings today. Some of that was his opinion. Some of it. Probably a little over the top. Some of it. He does have a very anti-police and prosecutorial view. Uh, the reason why we bring some up so much of it is because he he has statistics, he has studies, he has you know people in the justice system, judges, prosecutors. You know, uh, there was a quote that I didn't put in here that was from a CIA agent, like people that the normal person would deem credible. Credible. Sure. Uh, so just to put a wrap on this, we will be back in a couple episodes from now. Uh, looking at things from sort of the other side of this. Uh, so we'll have a part two, probably going to be sometime later into February, um, maybe even early March. So take a look and listen for that as uh, we come around uh, to seeing that. Next episode, we're going to cover some of the most not never-ending drama of the Richard Allen case. We'll hit that again in our next episode. Then we'll follow up on the back end with the part two of this episode. Uh, sorry, this one ran a little bit longer than normal, but hopefully you enjoyed it and will give us a listen again in the future. Thank you for listening to another episode of Pucket Law Talks. See ya.